Are you enjoying this podcast? Well, you have KUOW members to thank for that. KUOW members make the trusted local journalism and storytelling you hear on this show possible. Become a member today and help support the production of this podcast. It only takes a minute. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. The city of Seattle is trying to add trees, yet in the last five years we've lost tree canopy, a loss the size of Green Lake. Why is that? And can Seattle have branches and leaves and also density? We'll discuss that and the rest of the week, because that's what we do on Week in Review. Today with Seattle Times General Assignment reporter Amanda Zoe. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Bill. Seattle Met Magazine Deputy Editor Allison Williams. Hi, Allison. Hi, Bill. And soon to be joining us, South Seattle Emerald founder and Seattle Times columnist Marcus Harrison-Green. And you can watch the program because we're on YouTube and we're on Facebook, and all you have to do is search KUOW Public Radio. Okay, our first topic sounds so soothing. Shade. Branches, canopy, but you know it's not news unless it's troubling here at KUOW. The city of Seattle lost 255 acres of tree canopy in the last five years. Amanda, before we learn why that is, will you remind us why trees matter? Yeah, well, um, I think a lot of people in Seattle would say that they're quite aesthetically important to the city and the identity. Um, but on a more practical standpoint, they're really important when it comes to climate change resiliency. Um, they provide shade on those really hot days we have during the summer. And then in times of heavy rainfall, they soak up water. Um, so, so essentially, they're important for climate change effects. Right. We've all heard about heat islands. And and where do you know, uh, Allison? Where Seattle is losing tree canopy? Uh, well, I know Amanda has has looked into this. I was reading a little bit about just the idea of tree canopy and heat islands, and where they're located in the city, and why that's such an equity issue. And that is because it is not an even spread of where we have these heat islands. They tend to be in neighborhoods uh, on the south, southern end of Seattle. They tend to be in neighborhoods with um, a you know, poorer population and places where, uh, you know, the heat is is affecting people more. We had a big uh, heat wave last year and we, people died. Um, over the last couple of years, we've started to see that extreme heat is actually very dangerous. It's not just uncomfortable. And it's hitting some neighborhoods, you know, South Rainier Beach uh, and down South much more than it is north mm-hmm. of Seattle. And do we know why we're I can think of various reasons why we could lose trees? What mostly is going on, Amanda? I think a lot of the loss, uh, according to this report that um, that came out recently, has occurred on residential areas. Um, so I think sometimes trees are being cut down for new developments. Um, and then we also see that trees, are lost in the right of way. And I, my guess would be that's just normal pruning and tree health problems. The right of way. I, I saw the biggest net decrease in canopy was in Seattle's natural areas. I think this is, is either Crosscut or Seattle Times where I read this. Like the West Duwamish Greenbelt in West Seattle, much of Discovery Park in Magnolia, and most of Interlochen Park on Capitol Hill. And when I heard about the West Duwamish Greenbelt, I thought, hey, this time period includes the time when, remember those homeowners in West Seattle? Oh, they yeah. <laughs> cut down the trees so they could preserve their view. and Yeah, mm-hmm. like more than 150 trees. That's significant. A lot, and, and one of them was Marty Reamer from 103.7, the mountain, ironically enough. So uh, that, is, that a, is, that even a, a negli- is that a negligible factor, people uh, sneakily? Getting rid of trees, that's not mostly what we're, that's not what we're talking about here in this, in this five-year tree canopy loss. Well, the, the issue of needing to report when you remove trees is, is a real one. Um, I mean, that was not on their land, as I understand it. Right. It was, it was designated. On... So that, that was, would have been illegal in any situation. In fact, on a slope that the city had called cr- environmentally sensitive because of landslide. Uh, threat. But it is uh, newly important and required for people to note when they are doing significant tree removal. Yeah, that that is um, something that I know that Seattle City Council members are looking to improve this year, which is that we do have some tree protection 
uh, ordinances in place, which pretty much says, you know, if you have a tree of a certain size, you can't cut it down or you can't cut it down without replacing it in some way. Hmm. Um, so, so it is something that I think politicians are trying to have a little bit more control on, um, you know, whether the trees are on a residential property or, you know, publicly owned trees. Okay. But there are other big reasons why we lose trees. We have, for one thing, a lot of Seattle got cut about you know, 100, 150 years ago, right? And isn't that, there's a certain amount of just a natural lifespan of trees that are that are old. And, and plus, we have climate change, um, which, you know, I think makes trees weaker, right? More vulnerable to pests. They need more water. They're just, they're, they're high, high maintenance in the first place. And, and as you said, development, which is interesting because we, the city, a lot of, the city, on one hand, is densifying, but can the city get denser and create more housing and also save trees? Yeah. So um, I ta- I mentioned that Seattle City Council members are looking to improve the tree ordinance. And one barrier that's kind of come up in the last year is that I think the Master Builders Association pretty much tried to challenge it and say, hey, this would make it really hard for us to build affordable housing and dense housing. You know, these regulations get in the way. Um, so I think it is, you know, it is a trade-off and something that, you know, might take creative solutions to ensure that, you know, we have a canopy in Seattle and we're resilient to when there are heat waves, but also that we build new housing, which um, everyone agrees that we need more of. Right. So nice when everyone agrees <laughs> on mutually incompatible goals. Trees, nice. Housing, good. Right. Well, if Seattle were to keep its single fa- you know, all its single-family zoning, would that mean that more trees will be cut down just in other places to build homes in those places? You know, I really don't know the answer to that. Um, I thought it was really interesting in the report. You could see which areas had net growth and where... where um, there had been net loss in trees. And I saw that in like Ballard, Magnolia, Queen Anne, all of those areas had seen an increased like amount of trees in the last couple of years. And I was kind of like, wow, like no surprise, like those neighborhoods got the new trees. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know about that single family zoning, how that tees up with trees. Mm-hmm. Well, clearly the answer is tree houses. If you yes, want to have single, it. The single family tree house. Yes. 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 Um, I think we've solved that particular problem. Uh, Allison, I want to to end this um, tree segment on a certain kind of tree. Loveliest of trees, the cherry now is hung with bloom along the bough and stands about the woodland ride wearing white for Eastertide. This has been Poetry Hour with Bill Radke. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe more poetry than you'll hear in a year from me. Uh, Talking about the the cherry trees near Pike Place Market. Yeah, yeah. I saw this was reported by uh, Northwest Asian Weekly that several of the cherry trees that are down there um, near Pike Place Market were marked for removal. Um, And it's an... uh, Foundation or an organization that has been looking at the redevelopment around Pike Place Market and worries about um, a large building that's coming in that noticed that this was happening and sort of put their attention towards these cherry trees. And, um, you know, it sounds like they're going to be replaced with uh, elm trees rather than new cherry trees. And of course, um, the cherry trees have a connection to Seattle with our Japanese American community. Um, we have quite a few of them on the University of Washington campus. Mm-hmm. They're they bloom. It's a, a cultural event. It's a, a nature event that uh, brings out a lot of photographers. And um, it's sounding like those cherry trees are probably going to be coming down even before they bloom this year. And, you know, it's really Ouch. interesting to me is how, you know, this is such a widespread issue about trees and climate change and equity. But we as people, we really attach ourselves to specific things. We don't, we're not good at thinking about this on a citywide scale. We're thinking about that one tree. There's a tree that just came down in Capitol Hill um, that I swear every person in the neighborhood said something about it when it came down because it just it meant so much to people, this beautiful one old tree. Mm-hmm. And I think this cherry tree is it, – it represents for people um, – construction downtown. It represents the city's past. It represents a a beautiful photo of blooming cherry trees in front of Pike Place Market. So I, you know, I don't know all of the factors that went into deciding, you know, which trees are going to grow the fastest and have the best foliage and be well suited to that street. But the symbolism of it is really, I think, what catches a lot of people's attention. And, you know, if nothing else can sometimes make people aware of the issue of trees in our streets, just, just by the notability of those. Mm-hmm. 
And is anyone trying to save those cherry trees, or it's, is this happening for um, sure? I have not been down there in the last couple of days. Again, you know, Northwest Asian Weekly reported this, mm-hmm. and the signs on the trees did say that they were coming down, I believe, this weekend. Um, so I don't know if it's possible. There was a there was a phone number for uh, uh, to get more information that I tried calling and, and was not able to reach anybody. So oh. I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I noticed in that story, um, I think – they had quoted the advocates quoting the city that there had been a public comment period for, I think, the, you know, the general Pike Place um, renovations. But I mean, you know, on one hand, like, it seems like the city had a schedule and they're sticking to it. But on the other, like, I would never underestimate Seattleites and (laughs) just how much they love their trees here. Right. I had to, I couldn't picture an elm bloom. So I had to look up what an elm looks like. Hmm. It's fine. It's no, it's no cherry tree. <laughs> we we really attach ourselves to certain trees. You know, yeah. we have our evergreens. We have our Douglas fir. We have our cedar trees have deep uh, meaning that the cherry trees do. So, yeah, we don't quite have that connection to elms. Yeah. Speaking of firs and cherries, the city is trying to add um, more conifers, more evergreen mm-hmm. trees, uh, which, you know, used to be the way, right? Fewer okay. leaves to rake up. Fewer leaves, exactly. Needles over leaves. Uh, okay, um, so we'll leave trees for a moment. And since to look at things in bloom, fifty springs are little room. About the woodlands I will go to see the cherry hung with snow. Okay, thank you. Um, let's move to, we, if we started with trees, wasn't that a nice way to start a program with trees? Yes. We, we heard a cherry blossom poem. Um, so So let's keep those vibes rolling by taking you back to a Seattle summer. Like I said, it ain't news unless it's troubling. So, on a gorgeous day last August, King Five took us to the ferry line in Edmonds where a woman named Diana was sitting in her car waiting and waiting. What would normally take me um, an hour to two hours can take three to, to four to five hours, depending on the ferry lines. Coming over today, I had to bump my lunch date with my friend I hadn't seen for 30 years, you know, until the next boat. You haven't seen your friend in thirty years. Yeah, what's one more boat? But uh, but but it's 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 bad. They're long. We know ferry lines have been a mess. Schedules have been a mess. We've been down boats for uh, through the pandemic. And this week, Washington State Ferries gave us an update. Uh, before we hear about the update, who who can tell us why our ferries have been so forcocta? I can say something about it. Right. Um, a lot of it has to do between aging boats and um, staffing. So there's t- sort of two effects going on at Washington State Ferries, which is that a lot of their highly trained, um, I don't know what else to say besides people who run the ferry, um, they a lot of them are of, are of retirement age and are sort of aging out of the workforce. And then on the other hand, it's hard to um, it's been hard to recruit for them to get new employees. You know, it takes several years to just go up the ladder, um, and so they've had they've had trouble with that too. But it seems like they're trending in the right direction. Like they've made more hires, but they're still sort of below where they need to be when it comes to staff. And I know we saw that in just so many different industries, but particularly there you have, uh, you know, folks that were close to retirement when the pandemic hit may have, you know, retired a little bit early. Uh, You can't just make a ferry boat captain in, you know, a few months. So, Hmm. Well, the the ferry system has checked in this week and said, well, we've restored full service on four out of our eight routes, including that Edmonds to Kingston run. So is the ferry system uh, completely restored? Well, it's not completely restored, and there's um, some dates coming up. I think Bremerton's going to get its second boat uh, maybe later this year. Um, I think Port Townsend is um, 2024 to get their second boat back. Mm-hmm. Um, and then notably, one of the routes, one we don't think about a lot, um, up in the San Juans, they have a route over to Sydney, B.C. That's on Vancouver Island. Uh, until this week, uh, the note was that it was not coming back before this summer at the earliest, and they just announced that it's uh, 2030 at the earliest, which is... Not a year that we like to think about. 2030. But. We asked the ferry spokesperson, Ian Sterling, about it, and he said there's only one boat that's certified to make that Anacortes to Sydney trip, and we need it in the Puget Sound. If you were to talk to people in Anacortes and the San Juan Islands, they want to see that service operating normally rather than you know going up to Canada, which isn't nice to have. It's not a have to have at this point in time. 
Couldn't we get Canada to run that route for us? <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, Canada does run a lot of ferry routes. And, you know, it's it's kind of fun to have that San Juan ferry pop over uh, into Canada. But it, the truth is, there's a lot of other ways to, to get up to Canada. We have, again, the Canada's ferry system that goes out of Swasson, which is, you know, right across the border you can drive up to. Or there's a private ferry company that operates out of Port Angeles, the Black Ball Ferry, and it goes right into downtown Victoria. You can park in Port Angeles and walk on the ferry and, and have a whole weekend there. So, And then there's always the, the, Vic- the Victoria, <laughs> Victoria Clipper, Clipper yes. which resumed service this week. Absolutely. And it's, it's it comes out of uh, downtown Seattle. We have float planes that head up to Victoria. I think the commuter routes that are used in uh, Puget Sound are a little more important to restore, which is, is why the Sydney route sort of got left at the at the bottom. Yeah. We're talking ferries um, and on KOW's Week in Review, and we're talking about them with my guests. We have Amanda Zoe from the Seattle Times. We have Allison Williams from Seattle Met. And we have South Seattle Emerald's founder and Seattle Times columnist, Marcus Harrison Green. Hiya, Marcus. I'm doing great. I couldn't let you all have all the fun today. No, so no. I'm right here. Glad. I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, how about, uh, we're, we're talking uh, ferries. First of all, any uh, observations about ferries, or do you feel we covered it? I, I think that uh, Allison did a, did a great job. Okay. So. Agreed. Um, Victoria Clipper is back in service after after maintenance. And then one more t- transportation wait line news item here, Allison. SeaTac's getting money to make security go a little faster. Yeah, I was going to say, if you get people at the ferry lines complaining about their wait and people waiting for security at SeaTac, it could be a little battle of who's having the longest Who wait. has it the worst? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, SeaTac has been aware, I think, of, of some really lengthy waits they have going on. If you've been out of there recently, you hear them talking a lot about telling people to pick up arrivals at the departures uh, level instead of the arrivals to try to spread people out. Mm-hmm. And one thing, they just got some federal money to move one of their security stations down a level to that arrivals level. It's going to give them more space to have some more updated equipment and, again, hopefully spread out passengers a little bit. You know, SeaTac, it is an incredibly busy airport. Um, you know, I think it, we've all learned that you cannot roll up 35 minutes before your flight and expect to to make it. But uh, we are seeing some some upgrades. Uh, they have their spot saver system, which they've made permanent, which is a free system. It's not TSA pre-check and it's not clear. It's the kind of thing you log on in advance a couple days, I think, before your flight, you can do it and you reserve a, a, a time window to go through security. Um, you don't have to have an interview like you do with TSA PreCheck, um, and you don't have to pay like you might with Clear. Uh, and I got to say, I just flew out, went to New Mexico last weekend, and made myself a little spot saver reservation, and I was in and out uh, very quickly. So you still have to take oh. off your shoes, though. So you okay. know. thanks. Like, wear the non-holy socks, but <laughs> okay, you should be able to get your security socks. a little faster. Okay. All right. Thanks, spot saver. Thanks, Allison. By the way, what are the cars doing as you if you drive up to the airport and then you see a line of cars oh, just sitting so there? Are those what oh. are they doing? Are those uh, Ubers and Lyfts or are those? They're likely waiting for people who are arriving. There is a special parking There's lot called cell, cell phone, phone lot. lot for that. Yeah, um, this has been sort of perennial issue where like the airport is trying to up enforcement and you know threatens all these fines and mm. Washington State troopers. Um, but yeah, yet people still are parking on the side of pretty much what it is a highway. <laughs> yeah. yeah, what could go wrong? <laughs> Speaking of what could go wrong in cars, uh, we're going to move uh, to that form of transportation. You, all of you have driven south on I-5 into downtown Seattle, I take it. Have you taken the Union Street exit? Not so much you, Amanda. Do you know the exit that I'm talking about? I- very well. Very okay. Well. Very well. I used to what date somebody who you know I would get off on that exit and go see. So yes. Okay. So what what what's that experience like for you, Marcus? I mean, it is sort of in some way you know taking your life into your own hands a little bit <laughs> from here to here. But uh, you know, overall though, I you know I, I think that it is do it's a doable turn to make. I will say that. Yeah, and and wh- it's not it's not it's not ninety degrees. 
gosh, I don't know what number of degrees it is, but it is a very sharp turn. It's when you're sort of down in the uh, the convention center and stuff. Uh, it's kind of half tunnels, half bridges above you. And uh, you go from being on a freeway to downtown Seattle very quickly and uh, with a very sharp turn that not everybody's making or not everybody's slowing down enough to make. No. And we know this because uh, I saw the uh, it was a Cairo 7 reporter in this case who tweeted. But, you know, she's not the first. But there is a video, a compilation of car after car, I think 17, blowing it on that curve. Right. And I looked at the map. I looked at Google Maps. It's maybe forty-five degrees. There are signs. I mean, you know, you're you're leaving the freeway. You're in a city. There are signs that say thirty miles per hour. I know somebody on Twitter said twenty, but the sign. I, I watched a, another video from a driver's point of view. I mean, what's what's happening? What is the deal? I, oh, and I'll say this: in those videos, right, it showed in many of them there were like three or four other cars that that were parked, and it just made the turn just fine. So obviously. There yes. are people able to do it. It can be I done. Have to say yes. Yeah. Although I will say, looking at that video, there, there's this whole thing that you know Gen Z doesn't like to drive and yada mm. yada yada. I, I will say that video is maybe the cure for wanting to get a driver's license yes. because it's it, it looks like a demolition derby right there. It so. really does. Well, I just I think some we we trained ourselves not to believe it when they say this curve's coming up and you need to slow down. We're like, yeah yeah yeah, I'll go from sixty down to fifty five and yeah. I used to ride on the back of a in high school of a friend's uh, motorcycle, and he said he used to say, you know, they conveniently make these exit signs exactly half the speed that you should actually be going <laughs> when, you, when you come on. <laughs> um, well, so here's the thing: um, I, I try to bring up. I'm always noticing words that we use, the words in the news, words and phrases that catch my attention, and I would say this week's word of the week is accident. Because some people say we should stop calling them car accidents because they're really not accidental. We design cars and roads in such a way that this is going to happen, that, that people will spin out on freeway exits and people will ram into each other. What do you all think of that? Well, I, I, we were just talking about this earlier. To me, the, the problem with the word car accident is not as much the word accident because I don't think that people want them to happen. It's with the word car because when somebody goes off that exit way too fast and ends up getting in smashing up their car, it's because of the driver. And it's not necessarily the car something that did on their own. I think maybe we should be thinking of them as, as driver incidents or driver accidents hmm. because we need to take a little bit more responsibility for what we do with these large vehicles. I mean, Allison, I would I largely agree with you, Allison. I would push back a little bit. They have that whole autonomous driver feature on Tesla <laughs> and I mean, that doesn't seem to be working any better than, the, you know, the, the average run-of-the-mill person. So I don't know. Ah, I don't know. Yeah, fair point. Should we stop saying accident, Amanda? I, you know, I think most of the debates I've heard around this have to do with victim blaming or, like, you know, who's to blame when there's a collision. But I will say as a reporter, um, in our style guide, and then also when, you know, I've talked to law enforcement, when I've talked to pedestrian advocates, all of them say to use collision. So it seems like that's kind of the new accepted term. Yeah. Collision is the new accident. Can I tell you something that I'm that I'm not proud of, but I'm just going to be uh vulnerable with you. Absolutely. I I kind of enjoyed watching the video <laughs> because I knew I knew that this of the Union S- Street flipouts because I knew that nobody was seriously hurt in this video at least because the just the way the re- the Cairo reporter sends it out, you know, crash magnet, mm-hmm. exclamation mark, it's going viral. So I didn't want to see anybody hurt, but there was something, I don't know, I don't know if it's schadenfreude. It's some, sort of like, it's sort of, it, it connects with the question of whether we should call it an accident, because there's kind of a hubris in the fact that we, we, we try, that we drive around in cars and we depend on them so much and we go so fast and probably we don't pay attention, I don't pay attention all the time, you know? It's like why we like watching the videos when it snows in Seattle of people ping-ponging down. Yes. I enjoy watching those videos. As long as everyone's okay. Yes. Yeah. And we can th- we think I wouldn't do that. That's part of it. We say I wouldn't do that in that situation. That's it. What so I okay. what I thought was funny in that video, and I, and I agree that collisions are serious, um, is that you know you would see these other cars that have made that turn perfectly fine. They're like waiting at the stoplight, and then you just hear the like squealing wheels and like. The car comes barreling out, and in some cases, those cars are like moving out of the way for this like other out of the, out of control car. <laughs> yes, which is a pretty heads up move. 
on their part. Yeah. What no, you're saying? No, I was just going to say, I mean, to your point, right? I mean, I think it's this whole, it feeds on our whole need for superiority, right? When, we, yes. when we're watching these videos, we're like, no, there's, there's no way I would ever be that stupid. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That, that is part of it. Yes. I feel like a terrible person, but I feel like at least I've been honest about it. Yeah. yeah. You uh, said what we all were thinking. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. I want everyone to be safe. May we all. Um, okay, so that's uh, that's a little um, tree and transportation beginning to week in review. We've got much more to discuss from this week after we take a short break. We are with Amanda Zoe from the Seattle Times, Allison Williams, Seattle Met, and South, South Seattle Emerald and Seattle Times, Marcus Harrison Green. We're on YouTube and Facebook if you want to search KOW Public Radio. Up to you. Either way, be right back after this short break. This podcast is free. And it's accessible to everyone, thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give, and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks! It's KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. This week, about 30 downtown Seattle protesters gathered to call for the closure of the King County Jail, which is not as controversial as you might think, since the King County executive has said the jail needs to close as well. Marcus, what's wrong with this jail? Yeah, so basically what the many of the demonstrators have been saying is that this jail for the longest time has had very decrepit and deplorable conditions. Um, this we've seen in the last year or so nine people who have died in custody. Excuse me, in custody um, at the jail. Uh, there was also a, a recent person who took their own life there. And what they're trying to say is that we continue to have these inhumane circumstances for folks who are either awaiting trial or uh, awaiting sentencing, and that ultimately our uh, the King County uh, Executive, Dow Constantine, he has said yet another promise of like, hey, yes, no, we do need to close this. This is also in line. He has a history of making certain promises about zero youth detention and, and closing things, such as the uh, uh, the recent, uh, I should say, ongoing protests uh, to close the youth detention center, our family justice center um, that's uh, located in Capitol Hill that mm-hmm. has obviously yet to be closed as well. And so I think we have a very immediate issue of, hey, these are conditions that we want to make sure people, um, you know, don't experience, like, regardless of, you know, their station. Um, And then also, I think there's the larger macro issue of we live in a city and and county that uh, many of the the protesters are saying that continues to make these faux promises and, and proclamations of, hey, we need, you know, zero youth detention, and yet we haven't, what have we done with that? We, they're supposedly... There is supposedly this, you know, this proclamation that he said uh, that uh, Dow Constantine said about closing the jail, and yet it doesn't seem as if we're any closer. And so, how do we ultimately? We're a lot of these protesters. Protesters are saying we're done with these proclamations. What we want is actual action. And can we reverse engineer from okay, we want uh, we want the, the closure of this jail. We want zero youth detention. So how in the world do we get to a point where we can actually get there? What are the steps and activities that we are taking? And it doesn't appear that there are, are many. You know, I was, I was just thinking about, we were talking about the Washington State ferries and there's been staffing issues there. And when there's staffing issues, the ferries don't run or they run less frequently. In, in this particular uh, jail where they've had staffing problems, it leads to uh, the incarcerated people being put in isolation for huge amounts of time or not having people able to respond to mental health crises. And that, ha- that effect is just so much more intense. And so it can, be, it can be things as simple as, you know, inadequate staffing that can lead to these outcomes that's, you know, such a big problem. And, you know, we've uh, talked a lot over the years about mental health crises in these jail settings, and it's not usually a good combination. I know suicide is not the only way that people have died uh, at this jail, but it is, um, I believe the rate of suicide is much higher than uh, it is nationally for incarcerated people and that can come from untreated mental health issues. There is a, uh, the, the county is trying to pay for new behavioral health crisis centers, right? There's, there's no vote on that coming mm-hmm. out this spring. 
Yeah, in April, I think. And, you know, that's always a, something I'm curious about. These are very complex issues, but sometimes a, money is just a huge part of that. And I'll be interested to see if the city at the county is going to have the will to to choose to pay for some alternatives that are better funded and could have better outcomes for people um, who are being incarcerated for things that are more related to public health. Hmm. Um, We're going to continue on on KUOW's Week in Review. Uh, Speaking of um, incarceration and what's legal and not, there is a bill in the legislature that would prohibit employers in Washington state from declining to hire someone just because their drug test showed pot in their system, showed cannabis in their system. Amanda, cannabis is legal in Washington state. Why do employers even test for it? I, well, there's some jobs where obviously you cannot be high to be doing it. Um, But I think a lot of it is just that it's sort of the accepted practice in hiring um, and it's just sort of stuck on as we've had this change in our approach to cannabis in society. You know, when it was first legalized, there was all these exemptions and all this hand, you know, clutching about, you know, oh, it's for medical use, like not recreational, whatever, whatever. Um, And, you know, one of those was sort of saying like, yes, and you can still test for it when you are hiring someone. Um, But yeah, I don't know. It's stuck around. And then also, you know, I should say that there are also federal jobs um, and pot is still legal federally. Uh, so it makes sense that, you know, for fed- those federal jobs, they're still testing for it. Mm-hmm. And a drug test doesn't pick up alcohol use from two weeks ago. I mean, that's but- the thing is that, you know, pot, it's just a different kind of substance than alcohol as far as what you're able to detect. And not that, say, abusing alcohol couldn't have a negative effect on your work life, but it's not something they really can or do test for or take in- into account. So, you know, you you were asking, why does it matter when you can just stop smoking pot for a couple of weeks and, and pass a test? And I think that just when you think about the broad spectrum of people applying for and getting jobs, not everybody has the ability to say, oh, I, I want to get a new job, but I'll just go ahead and, and hang out for a couple of weeks before I make that happen. Or opportunities come up. And I think the understanding, the conversations about how to beat these tests are maybe more common in some communities than others. So you get you know, some folks that are not reaching, not able to get employment because they perhaps, you know, don't have the ability to hang out for a couple of weeks before they apply. Yeah, you're, you're referring to, uh, we, we had an email exchange about this, the sponsor of this legislation to prohibit employers from uh, from denying employment solely based on cannabis coming up in a drug test. The senator is uh, Karen Kaiser from Des Moines, and she said, Too many people who see that they have to take a drug test to apply don't even apply. And so I was asking you, would you hire someone who won't stop using cannabis for two weeks before an employment drug test? You know, it's really funny. We've been talking about mental health stuff. I think there's some self-medication that goes on with some cannabis use. And I don't know that I, I, I... don't want to hire people. It sounds like a whole job that would be way more work than getting to write about fun stuff. So, yeah. uh, but I, I think it's a it's a it's an issue that doesn't always come down to someone just not willing to put down their their joint for a couple of weeks. I think it's broader than that. And I'll also add that it's not you know if you've gone through a drug testing process, it isn't as simple as the person hiring you saying, "All right, now like in two weeks you're going to take a test." Like. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Like sometimes those tests come out of nowhere, mm-hmm. or like you're in a process for months and months, and then finally you're asked to take a drug test, and like you might have not been told ahead of time that that was coming. Um, so and, you know, people and, are and also this legislation wouldn't stop, wouldn't prevent that. You could still be tested when you're on the job. I think they have they have to have certain reasons if they suspect impairment or if there's an accident. I don't know what the rules are about, but this this just wanted to point out this legislation is about That's pre-employment drugs. Yes. And notably, I believe it also carves out jobs where impairment could lead to like serious injury or death. If you're operating a forklift or something like that, I believe it it wouldn't apply. That's right. Uh, where uh, jobs where impairment on the job means substantial risk of death. It excludes airline and aerospace industries. It excludes those requiring a federal background investigation, as you were saying, or security clearance. But I, I, I interrupted you, I think, Amanda, I just, to, no, no, to highlight fine. that. Did you, did I, you, you said what you wanted to say yeah, about that. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, do, if there is still detectable pot in your system, are you affected by it? Oh, gosh, I'm not an expert on that. I believe okay. that it is detectable after it is having a an effect on your system. And the, I think the, that's the, right. Several weeks. weeks yeah. You know, and, and if you're a heavy pot user, I think, you know, that can be more than two weeks. Okay. And we don't really have a test for impairment for cannabis. It just either shows up or it doesn't. I mean, I know that was a question. It's not like blood alcohol. When it was no, yeah. legalized in, in the uh, context of vehicle accidents, uh, collisions, if you will. If or you will. Other, yes. or other. Let's start now. Let's start now. <laughs> uh, because we're so used to the blood alcohol level being sort of an immediate measurement that there is no equivalent. Right. Okay, so uh, Nevada, Nevada, Nevada did this um, a few years ago. Last year, California barred discrimination in hiring and firing and other employment conditions if a worker is using cannabis off-duty. And in the legislature now in Olympia, lawmakers are discussing banning employers in Washington from not hiring somebody solely because their drug test shows cannabis in the system. We're covering the news of the week, and uh, we're going to take a short break, and we're going to continue when we come right back. You're listening to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. We're also talking with Seattle Met Magazine Deputy Editor Allison Williams and Seattle Times General Assignment Reporter Amanda Zoe. And we, you know, Emerald City Comic Con is happening right now. Yeah. So if you're walking around downtown and you see some costumes that surprise you a little bit, just remember that's not just the usual Seattle style. Right. And it's not Mardi Gras. It's, yes. it's Comic-Con. We've discussed that many times mm-hmm. uh, on our air here. It's at the convention center, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, Allison, you're more excited about next week's Association of Writers and Writing Programs conference at that same convention Listen, center. Listen, it's a different kind of nerd. There's, uh-huh. you know, and there's lots of crossover, but this is a... Uh, uh, a few more tote bags, maybe, than Comic-Con. Uh, right. Yeah, the AWP, as it's called, is a very large conference for um, sort of narrowly, like, uh, graduate programs for creative writing. But it really turns into a big sort of book event. Um, the keynote uh, is being given by uh, Min Jin Lee, who wrote the book uh, Pachinko. Oh, gosh, I'm going to mispronounce it. But she is a National Book Award finalist uh, novelist who's going to be coming here and just days and days of panels and discussions about various issues in um, literature and the writing scene. And I will say it um, can be a little expensive to get into the actual conference, but one of the- How cool- much is a little expensive? Do you know? Oh, I want to say it's somewhere north of 350 for access into the panels and stuff. Wow. There's different- $3.50. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately not. Okay. Um, although $3.50 might be a little much for some some of the creative writers out there as mm. well. But yeah, it's, it's in the hundreds of dollars. And it's um, students are often maybe, you know, they get some student rates and such. But the really cool thing is with all these just- thousands and thousands and thousands of writers descending on Seattle is there's going to be so many off-site free readings. Um, every bookstore in Seattle is going to be hosting multiple events, um, but bars, cafes, art galleries, um, music stores. I know there are some zine parties. There's some film. Northwest Film Forum is doing, I think, a couple events. And um, you just you get people who might be coming here. They might be on a panel in the conference center at the very sort of academic setting. But then they're also going to do an evening reading for free with, you know, cheap wine and cheese in the back and mm-hmm. uh, writers getting down. So it's a really fun time. <laughs> and it's a really good time if you're ever interested in maybe getting out and seeing some poetry. If you didn't get enough poetry from Bill Radke's uh, <laughs> right <laughs> special poetry hour, then uh, there'll be a lot going on. <laughs> Right. Um, And this is a marker, just a little marker of where we are in the pandemic. Even a Seattle Writers Conference is not requiring masks. Yeah. You know, some of the attendees uh, put together a change.org petition, you know, asking why they weren't seeing the kind of COVID protections that you saw at, like, say, the World Economic Forum, where they had people in with uh, air filters and masking and uh, such like that. And, you know, I think the writing world um, has some folks that are really looking at um, disability access, people who are unable to come to a place that they might be exposed to uh, disease. In the past couple of years, they've done more heavily online presence. There is still some hybrid uh, online stuff with this AWP, but they will not be requiring masks. Mm -hmm. And finally, 
it just occurs to me how Seattle this conversation <laughs> is. We are one of, our listeners may know, we're one of two American cities to be designated cities of literature by the United Nations. Indeed. And you know the other one, I'll bet. Uh I happen to. Yes, you were about. I think oh, you were about to Iowa, say it. Is it Iowa? It's yep. Iowa City. Uh, yeah, I have a. Um, what is she? A niece by marriage or something? Who uh, who goes to school there? You know, great writing program. But Absolutely. they were a city of literature before Seattle. Yes. And do you know? Is that a? How was that measured? Is that number of readers or bookstores or libraries or authors? Or do we just put off the vibe? <laughs> I, I think it's um, depending on whether you went through this arduous application process. It wasn't um, that we had to ask for. Yeah. <laughs> I see. So we had to write an essay. Yes. I'm going to go with the number of uh, canvas tote bags per capita. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> certainly. Probably certainly. how it was, it was chosen. Okay. Has that, has that been... Has that worked out great? Is, it, is that, a, is that a, a distinction that Seattle has, that we're a city of literature? I mean, I don't know that it probably has a much direct impact. I know that this is the second time AWP has been here in the last, uh, gosh, 10 years, I think. Mm -hmm. But, you know, things like giant conferences come down to things like convention center space and other uh, factors. But I do think that as a city, we we try to sort of have that as one of our calling cards as a a sort of literate reputation. But um, I will say I, I love our independent bookstores. We've got a lot of them and they're very active and I'm proud that we still have them going as a city. Yeah, it's a really great scene. So many used bookstores, you know. Yes. Seattle people love to thrift and that is no exception when it comes to books. Right. Okay, so we'll find you at the uh at the convention center next week with the tote bag. You won't recognize me at Comic-Con, but you'll you'll be able uh, definitely. to pick me out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um okay, now we have time left in the show for uh, to surface something that made us smile. As I've said a couple of times, it's often not news. Unless it's troubling, uh, but I but I try to break the the stranglehold of the bad news. For one thing, I'll I'll contribute something. Uh, Jeff Bezos, of course, wants to to go to the moon, but one of the many hurdles about moon travel is it's very dusty. It and the dust is electrostatically charged. It coats everything. It is abrasive. It can cause lung damage with long term exposure. And trying to just brush it off damages the spacesuit. But this week, Washington State University, little old WSU researchers announced that they have figured out how to remove almost all of the spacesuit moon dust with a liquid nitrogen spray. And how did they find that out? They tested here on Earth on a Barbie doll dressed up in a suit. Yep. The Barbie doll in a suit came clean. And now WSU says its researchers are, quote, working to fully understand and model the complex interactions between the dust particles and liquid nitrogen that allows the cleaning process to work. So they don't even know why it works. It just does. It worked on Barbie. Or they just want more grant money. But either way, way to go, Cougs. I'm, I'm picturing the mechanic and, like, the spaceships pulling out the filter and, like, looking at you and be like, this really got to be replaced. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dust, serious impediment to uh, travel. Did anything make you smile this week? Yes. Um, there, there's some of my Seattle millennial friends are talking about the latest American Girl doll, the new historical one. She um, is growing up. It, the year is 1999. That's historical. That's now. historical. Yeah, and she. Well, the thing is that she's actually there. There are two of them, and they're from Seattle. Um, one of them is really into skateboarding and grunge, and one of their pets is named Buffy, uh, I presume after Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, this is uh, it's making some millennials talk. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was laughing. I saw that doll, and I think the other pet's name is Blossom. Yes. And I was, I was like, Buffy and Blossom are really just two different times in 90s girlhood. I, I'm not sure you can put them together. Is that TV show Blossom? Is that yeah. what you're talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that fits. I must confess for the listeners that I am not I did not really experience 90s girlhood. I was a little bit too young for it. It was fantastic. <laughs> but I'm really dealing well with uh, my childhood being described as historic. Yeah. <laughs> it's fantastic. Are you, are you American girl um, aficionados? Oh, Either absolutely. One of I grew up with my uh, Kirsten. She was a pioneer girl. Now, that was that was history. That was the 1800s. Right. I could, oh, yeah. That's you know, history. That was well, 1990s. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was like World War II and like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, the colonial day. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yep. Yep. No, you, she's still um, sitting in, the, in my parents' uh, house. Oh. Uh, 
you know, keeping watch. Okay, Kirsten. <laughs> Amanda, Amer- American Girl? Oh, yeah, certainly. Yeah. I mean, I still remember the plot lines to all those books. Okay. Yeah, my kid had, uh, a, I think, a Russian um, Jewish immigrant who lived in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. So when she and I visited Manhattan, yes, we did take the doll. <laughs> yes, we did find where her father's fictional shoe store must be <laughs> based on all the clues. See, it's, it's educational. It it's was educational. educational. I've got a photo well, there. Well, i yeah. got to tell you, uh, what made me smile this week is uh, I went to a restaurant last night on Capitol Hill that had closed uh, several months ago, Kadima Can, and they just reopened in a new location. And I went with bated breath to see, you know, if it was going to be the same. It's not exactly the same, but I have to say, seeing the neighborhood come together and, you know, we we it, living in a city, you see a lot of stuff close and you mourn it. It's really fun when... when a new one pops up or a, a return comes. Yeah. I actually went there recently, the new location also, mm-hmm. um, and had a great time. Yeah. I'm excited about my leftovers. What am I having for lunch after this? <laughs> it's great. Well, that's a reason to smile. I, I finally will add that um, Bruce Springsteen came to Climate Pledge Arena this week, which I did not see, but I did see that he went to Pike Place Market f- to do what? To save the cherry trees, do you figure? Did he throw a fish? You nailed it, Amanda. Oh, man. (laughs) TT for Bruce, which I think me is code for this is just for tourists or this is just for like they're not even going to they're not going to sell this fish. Uh, Whatever the TT means. uh, But the the boss caught a fish. The the has a um, tour. His tour has a Twitter account. And they posted that video of that fish cap catching with the caption, Bruce Springsteen being thrown a fish during his free time in Portland. Oh, ouch. <laughs> yeah, wow. So most of the replies were just uh, correcting them. But uh, a few other replies. Norm wrote, try it on a fish boat during rough seas. Tom said, now the band is going to smell like low tide. John said, if that was the last fish, charge him $160 and tell him it's dynamic pricing. <laughs> and Kimba wrote, that is one lucky fish. And Kimba, I don't know that I would feel lucky to be sliced open and thrown at Bruce Springsteen, but that is an upbeat spin on it. And you made me smile. So, uh, and so did you. Thanks to both of you for coming in uh, uh, to KOW's Week in Review and Marcus Harrison Green from South Seattle Emerald and Seattle Times. We've been talking with Seattle Times general assignment reporter Amanda Zoe and Seattle Met Magazine deputy editor Allison Williams. Great to see you in person. I hope to do it soon. Thanks, Thanks so Bill. much, Bill. Yeah. Enjoy. Uh, Enjoy the Writers' Conference, won't you, with the tote bag. Week in Review is produced by Kevin Kinestad, and we have social media and live streaming production from Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. We have Guy Nelson running the board. I'm Bill Radke. I appreciate you joining us, and I look forward to talking with you again a week from now on Week in Review. Hi, it's Bill Radke, host of KUOW's Week in Review, here with a bonus track. I'm doing a new series about words. Have you noticed how often we don't say what we mean, or we use language to hide something, or to frighten, or flatter, or insult, or get clicks? Meanwhile, we are devaluing some wonderful, precise language. We can talk better. Okay, so here I am telling my guests, Seattle Mets' Allison Williams, Seattle Times' Patrick Malone, and Geek Wire's Mike Lewis, that news media have used the words iconic and legendary to describe the Boeing 747, Beth's Cafe, North Lake Tavern, Sue Bird, Soundgarden, Tom Brady, Alec Baldwin, Ozzy Osbourne, and Harrison Ford. Do those words fit? So, for example, does the Boeing 747 actually qualify as iconic. Well, again, it it represents more than the actual physical plane. It represents a time. It represents a field of aviation. I Yes, yes. it is. I mean, I think it, it qualifies. Bill, it literally does represent <laughs> that. Cause I'm sure you love that word too. Uh, nice. Nice. Um, uh, does everything, I mean, it, it really depends on your point of view for our people who follow women's basketball. Uh, Sue Bird and Brianna Stewart are absolutely legendary. Uh, I think it devalues them and the sport to say that because some people haven't heard of them, that oh, they aren't. No, I would say the same for Russell Wilson mm-hmm. and Ken Griffey. I mean, mm-hmm. when we say that an athlete is legendary, a legend, I think a legend needs to be either fiction or 
it seems like fiction. It's just inconceivable to you. Like you can't imagine if you if you didn't see it. Well. Ken Griffey Jr. I saw Russell Wilson and Sue Bird and Ken Griffey. Mm-hmm. They were very good at what they did. There's nothing really inconceivable about it. They just scored points. But often. sports is an arena that's meant to build up fun legends within it. So I think it's it's a different scale than you might use in any other arena. And I think we we can't ignore that hyperbolic language is iconic in this country. <laughs> is it? What yeah, does it I, represent? I think that just like as a print journalist. You know, we're always looking for the right word. What is the right verb here? What accurately describes this? What is the most specific? And it's lazy that we get away from that in casual conversation. Sorry to be a word nerd on Maine, but, you know, I think that there are times in conversation where I'm just stopped in my tracks and thinking, I would never use that word if I had to stand behind it in print for 50 years. Or, or <laughs> Hard more. scrabble being one of those words. You've never, <laughs> yeah. No one ever has actually said. You're right. right. <laughs> they only put it in. I would also say, though, that we run the risk of taking a perfectly good word. Like the word hero does, is meaningless at this point, right? Yeah. The word genius is meaningless at this point. And Tragedy. I think, Tragedy is a wonderful word. But all, now it's just something sad. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I, it, it, it's too bad because it seems like when you have and I'm a sort of a word nerd as well as everyone else here I like it when you have a super precise word that really captures what you want but when it gets completely and headline writers sorry headline writers out there headline writers are the worst because they want something that's going to grab you into the story but frequently when they use the word slams or the, you read the story and Mike Lewis made, blasts headline blasts. writers and you read the story and it's like very mild criticism, friendly criticism of something yes. right well especially in we were just being encouraged to read headlines more and more I mean uh, on a print newspaper the story is right there so yes. it's it's harder to avoid people certainly did it there were inflammatory headlines uh, in print but social media and other ways we're consuming news have definitely encouraged us to take just the most incendiary headline and ignore reporting behind it last one beth's cafe iconic legendary or just popular i'd say neither and i liked beth's and i used to go there regularly after playing basketball on saturdays but um i mean that omelet that's something and i know it ended up sort of getting a bit of cable television fame at yes. man meat man meets food what's what's this the, is the 12 show? egg omelet yeah, that you try to eat, the, eat that you can't eat by yourself yeah I'm glad that it's back open. You never yeah. hear that story about a place that's been around for a while. But I don't know that I would go down the legendary or iconic okay. road. Just glad to have it back. Yeah. Okay, I'm back. That's the project. Let's save our language and learn about ourselves, too. You can text me your word or phrase, if you like. That text number is 206-926-9955. Again, 206 926 Ninety-nine fifty-five. See ya.